Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and this week we're calling it Is Cricket Writing Art or Science? Who would be a prophet in this business is another way of looking at it and I'm thinking of that uh, in two ways really. Uh, Firstly, trying to predict the outcome of one day series is almost impossible as has been proved by our last podcast where, well, Simon Mann, you sat on the fence uh, and, but but it was proved to be very difficult to call because we thought, well, England favourites, they're going to win the first game. Australia might come back in the second. And, of course, the total opposite is true. Uh, one or two of the other predictions we, we made for the series maybe have, have come true, but that uh, sort of outcome thing with the series now in the balance has been totally reversed from what we expected. And also we're going to talk, as I said, about the art of cricket writing and how you do it now. And what, how much you, de- you use data, how much you use your eyes, how much you use your ears. Uh, and we've got two excellent people to talk about that from the same family. Simon Wilde and his son, Freddie, both of whom are recently published authors as well. So we're going to talk about their books and we're going to talk about the way they approach the art of cricket writing. But first, just a little resume of the state of play in the series ODI series, England, Australia, Royal London and all that. I should also say we've got uh, uh, three Simons on this call today. Uh, So I was trying to think actually, Simon Wilde, Simon Mann, what a collection of Simons was. And I I came up with a swathe of Simons. What do you think of that? A simplicity of Simons, surely. Simplicity. Don't be so rude. You're you're doing yourself down. A wisdom of Simons. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, send us your ideas about that one Um, but in the meantime Simon Mann uh, just looking at that one day series and our predictions one thing we did get right was the fallibility of that Australian middle order because they did they they flourished a little bit in the first game and then totally collapsed in the second what do you mean one thing we got right I said it would either be 2-1 to England or 2-1 to Australia and I'm I'm right in play I'm right in the game going into the into the last match the man I mean... who can't be wrong Simon Mann <laughs> unless it gets rained off of course the thing about it is of course you've got two very good sides that's the point isn't it and you know in a in a really tight tussle it's been you know it's actually been a fascinating series so far separated by 19 runs and 24 runs i mean england could they have won that first one if Bairstow stayed in a bit longer possibly they could have done uh, could australia have won the second one yes of course they could have done if they didn't have that amazing dramatic collapse as they had in that first t20 when they threw away a, a winning position uh, it's been really interesting cricket i think there's only been one sort of really obvious game so far and that was the the third t20 which felt as if australia were winning throughout i think the other four games have been excellent and just shows actually you've got two very good sides sort of going head to head in this sort of big arm wrestle 
Freddie, you, you've been obviously watching the series uh, more from a statistical point of view, because of course you work for CrickViz, the stats providers for All and Sundry. And one of the things we talked about actually in, in the sort of preview for this series was Glenn Maxwell, the enigma that is Glenn Maxwell. And he bore that out perfectly so far in the first two games with a brilliant 77 in the first game, which was a match-winning innings. And in the second one, out for about one, playing a shocking shot. So from an onlooker's perspective, he certainly summed up what we think of him. How about from a stats perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, the role that Maxwell plays in white ball cricket, be it T20 or 50 over cricket, is a very volatile role. And I think it's always important to understand that when we analyse players such as him. Coming in in the middle order is very difficult. Scoring at a high strike rate is very difficult. And starting quickly in particular is very difficult. It's going to involve a lot of risk. And sometimes it doesn't come off. And when it doesn't come off, it often looks silly because they're probably playing shots that are quite extravagant but for these guys they're shots that they play all the time and when it works we praise them for it and so yeah I mean in many ways the, the two knocks we've seen from him perfectly encapsulate the kind of player he is it's quite boom or bust and that kind of is the is the way it is with players such as Maxwell um, there are lots of other players around the world who embody similar traits. And um, what do the stats say about the the outcome of the third games from what you've seen so far? Well, I think England would, would be favourites. England haven't lost a, a one-day series at home um, of more than one game. We obviously, they obviously lost that series against Scotland a couple of years back, but they very rarely lose at home. Uh, so England will, will head into the third game as favourites, I expect. But as, as Simon said, they're two very strong sides. And um, in white ball cricket on any given day, I think uh, most teams can turn over the other team. Uh, so it wouldn't be a surprise at all if Australia would win. So I'm not going you know, to put my neck on the line there. But I, if I had to choose a team, I'd... I'd with England to, to end up wrapping up the series tomorrow. Um, they are, I think, a slightly better side than Australia. They are obviously the world champions and being at home, um, it's just, yeah, things are just slightly in their favour. But it's in, in white ball cricket, matches very rarely start more than sort of 60-40 in the favour of one side just because of the nature of the game. As I said, it's a, it's a game defined by five margins and um, underdogs can quite often win, which is why it's so exciting. Simon, do you, uh, from a kind of, uh, you know, more traditional journalist's point of view, do you hate white ball cricket because you can't really write your intro until the last ball is bowled <laughs> whereas in a, in a test match well, yeah. you can start your intro probably after lunch sometimes absolutely yeah absolutely right I mean the two games I've most recently attended the first T20 at Southampton against England v Australia and then the one the other night Friday when Australia won um, they I they both involved hasty rewrites so you know for all the talk about new technology and data and stuff with the old-fashioned problem of a print newspaper deadline still exists and I had to do quite a bit of rewriting on both of them I mean the second time not because England won the game from a, an impossible position but Sam Billings's century did change the story and I had to write quite a bit about Sam Billings even though Australia won so this sort of the result didn't change but the narrative did so, yeah, one-day cricket, you often do a nasty rewrite up against a deadline. Uh, in a way, you don't have to do in test cricket so much. But uh, So that that's one thing that's never changed. And Sunday times change. deadlines are usually earlier than Sunday papers are usually a bit earlier than, than Saturdays and, yes. and, and weekdays. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been um, writing for the Times and some of these games as well as the Sunday Times. But yes, the Sunday deadlines are earlier. In fact, back in if we go back to the mid-90s, around the time I was starting... Um, 
Sunday newspapers would be filing at sort of tea time. Um, so you know when there's a story like the ball in, uh, the uh, ball tampering story at Lords, dirt in the pocket, that sort of happened quite late, and a lot of journalists didn't sort of update their stories very promptly on that one. Um, so that shows just how early people were operating in those days. But things are things are slightly better these days. Actually, I'll, t- I'll tell you, my, my first ever journalistic assignment was working for Haters News Agency, who's uh, you know sort of uh, brought about quite a few uh, journalists around the place. Reg Hater mm. was, was a well-known journalist in the, the 1950s and 60s, and he founded this agency which got young fledgling writers a job or two. And my first job was actually covering Spurs against Everton for the Irish Times, uh, a Saturday afternoon, usual th- three o'clock kickoff. And the deadline, as you rightly say, for the Sunday Irish Times was 4.30pm. And that's before the final whistle. So uh, at 4.30 p.m. I filed dutifully my first piece, you know, carefully crafted. And at the time, it was nil-nil. Spurs against Everton, it was nil-nil. So I said, you know, how well Everton had defended. And, you know, it was a sort of bit of a turgid game. But, you know, Everton held their own and, and were going to get a point out of it. And I thought, well, quite, quite a good idea might be to just file it and then to beat the traffic head off out the ground before the game finishes. So I, I nipped out just sort of five minutes before the end of play and got on the 159 bus to get home. And literally on the top deck, as I was sort of cruising past the ground, I heard this roar and Clive Allen scored twice in the last four minutes. They never changed the copy, you know. So they still went, the, the story still had, you know, nil-nil with five minutes to go and well-played Everton. Well, they lost two 0 so I was never. I don't think I ever wrote for the Irish Times again. Actually, you surprised me. What an incredible surprise that is! <laughs> Who would have thought it? Here's a question for you, Simon. Simon Wilde. At what point, say, in a game, the two games you're talking about, the first T20 mm. and and the game on Sunday, do you start thinking I've got to completely rewrite this rather than tinker? And what what time do you start writing, and how how do you construct? A report on a on a one day international when you de- when you don't know the outcome when you know it might possibly go yeah. to the last two or three overs or whatever. Well, if you okay, so I mean, I think with the the two times reports on the Friday that I did recently, I, it was about eight hundred words. So I wrote, and I think I'm not un- unusual in this, but I wrote about four hundred words on the first innings, even if the innings, uh, even if that isn't ultimately what ends up being used, to get yourself sort of halfway on the first innings, and then you've you don't have to worry about that later and then if the second innings becomes particularly dramatic you'll pair back the 400 into 300 or whatever um and if 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 nothing much happens and it's fairly predictable the second half you'll probably keep it all but you try and do that at least and then you're you've cut down the amount of wordage you're dealing with to chain you know that might need late changes um and then the difficult part in the second innings is deciding when you commit to saying that the chases have won or, or lost really and um certainly that t20 at southampton when i think steve smith hit moen yeah. for six and they were the england players were looking for the ball you felt like that was the point at which the you know this was becoming an embarrassing defeat for england in fact it was the it was the moment of peak australia really because from then on everything just unraveled rapidly but so i think after they lost three wickets quickly i think i realized then that this is probably going to be a tight finish either way what would be quite fun is if you actually printed both reports in the paper and just compared them actually and that would show how dramatically that match yeah. changed in the last five overs or so yes. and it wasn't it well, was of course, an incredible um, yes, yes. game yeah and there have been games that go uh, tighter than that in terms of your deadline and and you do actually write two intros you know one with the chasers 
winning and one with the defenders winning and and you literally have them both ready with just maybe a, a one or two sentences to add as to how the game was actually decided in the last over or whatever you know I've done that before and I'm sure lots of other people have as well but you literally haven't got time to write the intro so you prepare you prepare them in advance really we're talking about this subject partly on the back of the current issue of the Cricketer magazine, which is called The Data Decade, The Changing Face of Cricket Coverage. And there's a really good feature which we commissioned in the middle here uh, by Paul Hayward, who we'll all know as one of the, the best sports writers in Britain. He's done uh, the rounds in terms of different uh, broadsheet papers. And at the moment, he's at The Telegraph. And uh, he's done a piece uh, which is entitled Less Lyrical, More Analytical reflecting on how the new wave of cricket writers use data rather than the naked eye. And he, he, his line here, Simon and Freddie, will, will chime with you because he says, the few remaining flag bearers for contemplative lyricism watch with admiration but also fear as super clever, data-driven young'uns rewrite the rules and the white male middle-aged citadel starts to crack. <laughs> so, Simon Wilde, you've been on this beat mm. for since about 1890. Yeah. Uh, is the Citadel <laughs> starting to crack? Well, I also spawned one of these nerds that well, you're talking thing, about. So, yeah. <laughs> I've, been a, I've been the um, architect of my own downfall here, haven't I, really? But um, is the Citadel <laughs> cracking? I think it's cracked, really, in a, in a sense. I think we uh, we newspaper hacks um, that are you know still operating have had to recast uh, the way we operate. The, the sort of lyricism of the, eight, uh, the 1890s, the 1990s is... There's not much room for those sort of pieces these days. Sidebar men like myself, when Michael Atherton's writing the match report of a test match and I do the sidebar, I have to be analytical in my piece rather than lyrical or colour, you know, just pure colour. They want, people want more analysis these days. But you can still be analytical without data and without stats, surely? Oh, I, th I, think, I think that's kind of the key point that I'd like to stress as well. It's sort of like, I don't sort of see it as a, um, you know, about the citadel cracking and, and maybe necessarily, you know, sort of the old ways uh, you know, disappearing. That's not necessarily, I think, what's happening. I think it needs to, it's a sort of combination of new and old. And, and, you know, you can still, I think, write, you know, beautiful match reports, but they can just now be interwoven with more analysis. And I think that's because now the analysis and the numbers are available to us. Whereas previously, I think, you know, cricket writers of years gone by would have to speculate a little bit more as to what was happening. And sometimes they'd have to sort of, um, yeah, it was more speculation and more guesswork. And now there's so much more that's measurable that I think we can provide a little bit more sort of um, some firmer answers as to what's going on. And then the, the challenge of the cricket writer is to try and sort of make that interesting and digestible. We don't want, um, you know, you're not, we don't want to be putting a spreadsheet in the newspaper. It still needs to be enjoyable to read. And I think that's the sort of the challenge of the new age of, of cricket writing, really. It's combining the two things. Yes. Simon, do you want to come in there? Which one? Yeah, I thought we'd have these problems. Um, so <laughs> how, how much? So just, just to give the, the listeners a bit of context here, um, Simon Wilde, you've written a number of books. You're going to tell me how many? Mm, 12 or 13. And your latest is England, the biography, the story of English cricket, 1877 to 2018, which came out last year to, to much critical acclaim and has something, something like 150,000 words. It's, it's a pretty big tome. Uh, your son, Freddie, has written with Tim Wigmore of The Telegraph, Cricket 2.0, Inside the T20 Revolution which uh, one uh, critic has called a fascinating book, essential for anyone who wishes to understand cricket's new age. So, you know, how much, I suppose, to you, Simon Wilde, 
How much mm. have you had to evolve your cricket writing and how much do you use Freddie as a, a, a sort of bouncing board or a, a source of information in his crickviz capacity to interpret and inform your pieces? Um, well, I do use him. I do ask him questions, and they and you're hoping they'll confirm your suspicions. Really, I mean, the idea that you know we just all totally rely on data. You know, we are sitting in a press box uh, watching the, the the play, and you know you form your own impressions as to what's going on, and and then you do hope that some data will confirm that you're not barking up completely the wrong tree. So, <laughs> as Freddie says, it's a bit of both, really. Um, but it it does it is reassuring if some if he can um, back up something that I've suspected or in fact put uh, put me right and um, tell me that actually something completely different is happening. Um, but I think any cricket writer now use uh, you know uses this data that's available to us. Um, it's you know Hawkeye pitch maps, all that sort of stuff. Um, the exact lengths people are bowling. Even the players use this stuff. Jimmy Anderson credits his phenomenal success partly to DRS and to the data analysis available to him and the pitch maps. So, I mean, of course, journalists are using it. The players are using it. What about on the other side, Freddie? My mother, who is 89, has written a few books herself and very articulate. She she beats most of the university students on University Challenge. Uh, she's, she's that bright. I don't know what happened to my brain, but he she's great. She's like a, a human thesaurus. So if ever I need a word or description or something uh, I often ring her I'm going to be completely lost when, when she eventually passes on so what about you Freddie do you use your dad's wisdom and vocabulary and knowledge in that sense you're going to say no aren't you uh, oh no no I know absolutely I do I mean well I mean I think many years of, of my dad helping me out with you know pieces of coursework and and you know uh, work, pieces of homework over the years have sort of fed into the the ability now that I might have to, to you know string a few sentences together um but you know of course you know both, I think both of um, both me and him shared each other's manuscripts with one another when, when we wrote both those books because I think you know it was useful for someone else to have a look over certain chapters and read through bits just for a second pair of eyes as it always is you know I think as anyone who's written a book will know it's always good to sort of share it with other people um, and so you know, that's something that we do but um, you know it, it, it's nice in a way because uh, my, my, my dad will often have little nuggets of news and things that are quite interesting that I might not otherwise know and we sort of will chat about cricket and he'll he'll feed me interesting things that way and then Likewise, he might ask for some sort of yeah data-driven nuggets and or thoughts on certain players that he might not have seen or whatever it is. So it's quite a nice sort of two-way street, um, which is which has evolved. Because I remember sort of maybe ten years or so ago when I was still at school, it would be very much me saying, oh, you know, who's going to be in England's team next week, and uh, I wouldn't be able to help him out in return. But now it's sort of yeah, it works both <laughs> ways, which is quite pleasant. <laughs> do you think you see the game in, in in the same way or in different ways when you watch a game of cricket? Do you think you you watch it? in a different way? I mean, Freddie, do you look at it from a purely statistical uh, point of view? Or do you think about, you know, do you think about the sort of human side of it and the frailty side of it? You know, it's, you know, batsman under pressure or a bowler who's oh, going around the park a bit. Yeah, completely. No, I, th I think the way that I watch the game fundamentally hasn't changed. But then what I do with that sort of opinion is the thing that's different. I'll, I'll still watch the game um, in a way that I'm sort of trying to absorb what I'm absorbing just by seeing it. And then I think I go away and then I'll sort of try and back that up with numbers. It's, I try and keep it that way round. Um, and sometimes you'll obviously uncover something in the numbers that causes you to see the game differently. But um, there, are, there are so many things you can glean from just watching. Um, you know, and the, the old fashioned eye test, as, as people in the game like to call it, is still immensely valuable. Uh, I mean, one example actually just that came up yesterday I mean, Zach Crawley got 100 yesterday for Kent. 
um, against Hampshire. It was a fantastic hundred. I was watching it on the on the stream, and he, he played phenomenally well. Now, Zach Crawley's white ball numbers are not or have not been that good across his career. I think he played a couple of T20 matches. He didn't have a particularly good strike rate. There was nothing in his numbers to suggest he was a particularly destructive player. But then if you watch him, and even if you just watched him in the test match where he obviously got that uh, double century against Pakistan, you could see, I think, there the sort of shots that he was playing were suited to white ball cricket. He was a dominating, um, aggressive batsman. And that was an example. I remember talking to a colleague at that point in time when Zach Crawley was playing that knock, that, you know, this guy can play white ball cricket as well. He's not just a red ball player. Um, And it wasn't borne out in his numbers. But then obviously yesterday it was quite satisfying to see him do something in white ball cricket. So whilst I still will be very largely led by the numbers and the numbers are still going to be playing a massive part in the opinions I have, I think it would be completely wrong to ignore some of the things you see, even if the numbers contradict it. And in that case, it was a very small sample size from Zach Crawley that suggested he wasn't particularly good at white ball cricket. And if you were to sort of take that at face value, I think you'd be a bit naive, really. You've always got to be open to the fact that the numbers might be wrong. And if you're not, I think you're going to open yourself up to criticism and mistakes. And do you find sometimes that you, you know, your numbers tell you something about a particular player, say in domestic cricket, you think this guy should be playing international cricket. I mean, yeah. the, the big one is, is someone like, I mean, it's a bit of a joke because it's become a bit of a joke, but someone like Benny Howell at, at Gloucestershire, you know, mm-hmm. lots yeah. of people say that th- these guys' numbers suggest he should be playing international cricket. Yeah. And I know, he's, I know he's been injured for quite a long time, but but that hasn't happened yet. I, 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 do you sort of get frustrated when you see something like that? I think, uh, how have they overlooked him so far? Yeah, I mean, Benny Howe's a fascinating case study. He's probably the perfect example to sort of bring up as someone for this sort of data-driven new age because his raw numbers are phenomenal. I mean, by his you know economy rate and strike rate alone, he is one of the best T20 bowlers in the world. I would be very surprised if he was to take a step up to the international cricket or the IPL and maintain those numbers. But he's probably he has probably been unlucky across his career not to have been given a chance. Um, and so it is a little frustrating when you see that. But at the same time, the people who are making these selections, and in this case, not picking Benny Howe, also know a lot about cricket and have a lot of reason. They have a lot of justifications, I suppose, for not picking him. There will be, and in his particular case, he's a very unusual bowler. He's a sort of not a spinner, not a quick bowler, and people are a little bit unsure how that's going to go. I think personally, it's very much worth giving him a shot. And if I was, you know, if, if I could, a certain team if I had complete control over it, I'd love to give him a go in certain conditions. But, you know, these, these people are paid, you know, for example, at the ECB, England have never picked him. England employ people who work year-round to pick these players. And, you know, I've, I have, we, we've, we work closely with the ECB now sometimes, and I've spoken to people there, not specifically about Benny Howe, but I don't doubt their knowledge for the game and the fact that they spend a lot of time looking and thinking about these decisions as well. And if they're not going to pick him, there is justification and reason for that. Um, but, yeah, in his particular case, I'd quite like to see it. But, you know, I respect the fact that he hasn't been chosen because it's not like these people are just... Um, are not looking at these numbers. They very much are now. That's part of their job. Mm. And, and you were part of the, the selection process for the Oval Invincibles yeah. 100 team. Did they listen to you exclusively? I mean, did you guide the whole process? I mean, how, how did that work? Or how much did you um, just advise the coach? Or were you saying, look, you really well, need him, him, him and him? Well, I was very lucky in that I worked alongside a, a fantastic cricket brain in, in Tom Moody um, and also the assistant coaches there, Matt Walker and Vikram Solanke, who were with us, were excellent. And I worked with my data scientist, Sam Green. So we had a team of us, um, but they were very receptive to it. I mean, I was obviously, I had never worked with um, Moody before that. I, I knew him. I'd worked with him in broadcasting, but not in a sort of team sense. So I was unsure what to expect, but um, it was fantastic. He was very open to the sort of recommendations that we had. 
Um, and, you know, it was a combination of his expertise in working in leagues all around the world and the data. It was, you know, we were never completely led by, uh, you know, if, if the numbers contradicted something, very strongly contradicted something he thought, then we probably wouldn't go for that player. And likewise, if we were very on, certainly, you know, we were like, we've got to go for this guy. But he was like, you know, there are certain things about him that I don't like, then we wouldn't. It was a very much a sort of merge of the two. Uh, and it works exceptionally well. I think that was a, it was a really good example there of where I think you're using data but not being totally led by it. And the coach, someone like, like Moods has been around for a, quite a while and coached for a long time, being very open to sort of, I suppose, new ideas. And, and that's not a surprise given that he's coached around the world and, in, and he's managed various drafts and auctions before. So, yeah, it's about combining the two. It's never really about being led by one or the other. I think that, as I said, with regards to Zach Crawley, it would be silly to sort of just blindly follow your numbers or your gut feel. It's, it's combining the two. Did you feel he was more receptive because he's an Australian and, and a bit of an outsider in, in county cricket? He might not have known the current players as well. I know he's had a you know long association with county cricket in the past, but perhaps he, did, he wasn't quite as up to date with the game as, um, you know, perhaps if it had been an English coach, for example. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I suppose at any point in time, it's very difficult to track all of the players that are playing all around the world. And that's what's quite interesting about working with the teams that I work with. You end up sort of pooling a lot of knowledge. And um, I've worked with teams in the IPL where you've got, you know, local analysts from India who are offering a lot with regards to the, the Indian players. And then quite often, um, companies like us at Crickviz or coaches from abroad will offer a lot on the overseas players. And it's, yeah, it, it's always... Um, it's impossible to track all the players all around the world, especially given the volume of cricket that's played now, and especially in T20. So it's very useful to have people coming from different backgrounds to sort of combine that all under one roof, so to speak. Simon, um, you know, just in terms of, of covering the game, I, I, I always found that uh, writing about a T20 game, unless you used the stats and, and sort of looked at matchups and how they, they didn't work out for a team or something, there wasn't an awful lot to actually write about because T20 doesn't really explore character to the same degree as the longer format because you're looking at, I mean, I suppose, you know, I'm, maybe I'm biased, but I like watching a player, particularly a batsman, between balls and how they're dealing with tense moments and, uh, you know, the movements up to 100 or, you know, trying to build a partnership mm. or as a really good spell in place from a bowler and they've got to try and withstand it. So do you find that writing about T20 is a bit limited compared to test cricket? Yes, yes, certainly. It, um, it, for the, exactly that reason, that the sort of test match, the characters of um, the players emerge, don't they? And, and you know, and perhaps a, a player might... Um, Produce uh, an innings or a bit of bowling against his normal character, and that, that's fascinating to see. But in, in a T Twenty, it's all happening so fast, and you can you can win a match with you know a five ball cameo, can't you? But it, it doesn't leave you much to write about. Um, so it be, yeah, the match reports or, or whatever uh, around a T Twenty match are quite fragmented, um, I guess. Um, they're almost like little so vignettes, it, I suppose, in a way, are they? Kind yeah, of, you know, little jewels yes, between are. players, which is how how it's how the game is often set up, isn't it? You you know, the coach will yeah. say, "Well, I want you to bowl when X person comes in, or I want you to bowl at a certain phase." Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's more, I suppose, um, it's more uh, formulaic in a way, perhaps. What's interesting about a T Twenty match is often identifying when it was where it was won and lost. So that that game at Southampton where Australia collapsed, what was it? What was the mm. point at which? The game tipped, and why did it tip? You know, and I, I said there's Smith hitting Bowen into the stands, and then the England players looking for the ball. It was almost like everyone had time in that little delay to think 
this game is done now, Australia have won it. And maybe even Steve Smith and his batting partner at the time thought, we've won this now. And then the next minute they make a mistake and the collapse starts. So it's a, sometimes a T20 report can be just about picking the, picking the moment when the match is won. And what, what, it's, it's often not about the numbers. It's, um, there's that uh, World T20 match, England-South Africa and Mumbai, where they both scored 230 each, I think. And actually, when you look back at that game, I think Adil Rashid bowled two overs quite cheaply in the, in the sort of like 13th, 14th over sort of period. And that was actually the point at which South Africa, even though they were heading for a massive 200 and whatever, um, actually just let their foot off the gas a little bit. And it was it, it proved decisive later on. And so sometimes it's, 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 it's trying to unearth what, what actually happened. And it's not always as obvious as it seems, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's just, a really interesting jump. point about. Sorry, Craddy, I just made this point and you can come in and yeah, you, sure. you can you can actually give your analysis of it actually because I was there that night commentating on the game on I think in the first T20. At what point did that game turn? You know, you think Steve Smith caught on the deep mid wicket boundary. He was the second wicket, and that was the start of it. But even after that, Australia still should have won the game. Even after Glenn Maxwell was out in the same over, Australia still should have won the game. And then you get to the last over, Marcus Stoinis on strike. And he, he actually was given the balls by Tom Curran to hit for to hit the sixes that or fours that Australia needed, but he wasn't able to do it. And then you say, well, is that because Marcus Stoinis is not a, a great finisher? I think it's a great debate to have, actually. About, and you look at that game. At what point did it really turn, or at what point did England ultimately take their their sort of their winning grip on the match? Well, I mean, that that game was completely remarkable, and, and I don't want to do a disservice to what to how well England did bowl at the end because I think they did bowl really well. They bowled quite intelligently. They bowled into the pitch and recognised that that was working well for them. However, I think what it was mentioned earlier, when was the game won and lost? I look back at that T20 as a game that was lost, not won, so to yeah. speak. So Australia yeah. were, I can't remember the exact figures now. 124 needed... for one, they were, yeah. with after 14.1 overs. Yeah, so they're needing almost a runner ball with nine wickets in hand. And from that situation, um, sort of dispassionately looking at why that game, you know, what happened in that game, I very much think Australia just lost it and threw it away. No team should ever lose from that position, almost however good the bowling. Even if, even if it was Jasper Brimmer and Lassith Malinga bowling at those guys, they still should have found a way. If you need a runner ball in T20 with, what, five men outside the ring, there are plenty of singles on offer. It, it, you know, it should be done. And it's fascinating. And this is where I suppose the game becomes not about numbers. And, and that's why I think there is scope, even in the shortest format, for really interesting analysis and sort of, you know, looking at the mental side of the game. How did Australia not, how did someone not take responsibility? What happened there to that dressing room? Because, and again, I, I, I think afterwards there was a discussion on Sky, there was sort of who was to blame. Again, I don't think you can blame a single batsman uh, individually for that because it's almost collective responsibility. No, yeah. no one person needed to take them home. Again, if you're that close to victory, you should just find a way to do it. And obviously what happened is none of them did take responsibility and it was a collective failure on the part of the whole batting order. But that's fascinating, right? Like, I mean, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of, that, of the Australian dressing room whilst that was going on because was it almost like, oh, you know, if I'll get out, the next guy will get it done. If I get out, the next guy will get it done. And suddenly it's like, well, hang on a second, none of us are going to do it. And, and you end up with Stoinis sort of having to swing from the hip when previously all he needed to do was knock singles. So um, I think that, that, yeah, that it's a fascinating side of the game as well, that the numbers will never really probably truly uncover. And just one point that I was just going to jump in on the back of um, what my dad was saying about um, the challenge of writing about T20 cricket. I think in a way, cricket writers have been spoiled by the fact that Test cricket is such a sort of canvas from which to write 
on in that you know the game is so long and drawn out that you have time to to put together these um, beautifully crafted match reports. And now you know we, we we talk about T20 being challenging to write about. A football match lasts half the length of a T20. Um, I remember quite recently we were talking about match reports being rewritten just at the top of the podcast. Sid Lowe, a journalist for The Guardian, um, shared a fantastic um, image on Twitter. Recently, PSG had a fantastic comeback in the Champions League. I can't remember which round it was, but they scored twice very late. And he had written 500 words about PSG crashing out and how this was almost like the ultimate failure of PSG's project of pouring loads of money in and buying all these players. And obviously, it ended up winning, so the narrative was completely different. But for football writers, it's even more difficult, I expect. Mm. And obviously, um, Yozo, you were giving the example of a football game at the top. that you know, Those matches are even shorter, and the deadlines are often, you know, you've got to fire it even quicker. Um, so I think, you know, in, in a way, part of the challenge with modern cricket writing is, I think, the fact that writers who are accustomed to writing across a very long period of time are having to adjust their expectations. But even then, it's not quite as short as other sports as, you know, as well. It certainly sounds like uh, to be a modern sports writer, you need to be able to get at least 80 words a minute uh, as a typing uh, speed. Yeah. Uh, or maybe, you know, it'll be, it'll be the, the case that you dictated a series before long and, and actually don't, uh, don't write anything at all, don't type anything at all. And just, just one thing I'd just like to pick up on uh, about, you know, that Australian failing, and of course it happened again in the second one day as well, the mental side of the game. So I've kind of, I've got another book out as well, and we're going to discuss that uh, later in the week, actually. But uh, one of the things I talk about in, in my book um, called A New Innings is uh, the way that different decades have been shaped by how the game has evolved. So I've actually called the 2000s the fitness decade uh, because everybody did get much fitter. And then 2010 to about, I don't know, 2016, 17, uh, and which is the name of the, the magazine, the title of the magazine this month, The Cricketer, The Data Decade, which sort of straddles both decades in a way. And what I've kind of called the, two, the 2020 decade in future is the mental decade, uh, not only to do with mental health, which obviously has, has cropped up a lot recently, but just in the way that players handle pressure and how do you evaluate that. And actually, the Rajasthan Royals, who this book is sort of written about a bit, have, have come up with a, a way of uh, actually statistically measuring a player's ability to finish a game by basically counting the number of times they're in at the end and they're not out. They've seen their team to victory and that sort of gives them a category of a good finisher. So can you, can you statistically uh, evaluate good finishers? And, and does that show that they're mentally strong? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you talk about sort of other data points. Um, um, me and my dad had this conversation after, in fact, Zach Crawley, again, bringing him up, um, after Crawley got that 100 in Southampton, um, because that was sort of, people sort of spoke about, you know, um, Ed Smith's quite, or, or meant to be a, a selector who's driven quite a lot by data, and Zach Crawley's first-class average was very low, so obviously there was no data involved in that pick. Now, one thing that we spoke about that evening after the game was the fact that actually I think there are a lot of, you know, data, data can be anything and there can be, you know, I think with England in particular who are one of the most advanced and sophisticated teams at this, they will be taking, I expect they probably do take, you know, personality tests, there are fitness tests, there are, uh, are lots of other data points that isn't just his first class average that will go into them deciding that they think Zach Crawley is a good test batsman and, and you know, like that example you just gave about finishers, you know, being there, 
at the end. Um, that's obviously something that is quite measurable, but I think there are probably lots of other ways as well of, of measuring a, a player's ability under pressure, and particularly as technology continues to improve, you know, who knows, it might go to things like heart rate monitors and all these kind of things. I'm not saying that that necessarily will, you know, make a good finisher, but the number of data points that you can collect, you know, is enormous, and it definitely isn't just limited to I know, a, a batsman's raw statistics on the field. And I think that's something as well that we've all got to bear in mind. And so, you know, when looking at that Zach Crawley pick, yes, there wasn't any first-class stats or many first-class to back up the pick, but there might have been something that, you know, the scouts had seen, you know, scouting reports from the likes of Mo Bobat, who's one of the player identification leads at the ECB, taking notes on Zach Crawley. That's, pick, that's data that's valuable and goes into, you know, him ultimately yeah. being picked. So I think that's important. I think what the... Um I think what the the selectors look at is um, is uh, on this theme is um, it can they are, are they problem solvers and I think um, they identified Zach Crawley as a problem solver and I think they think that about um, Bracey at Gloucestershire who surprisingly spent a lot of time in the England bubble this this summer I think last winter he was in Mumbai and he he was struggling against spin and then he was told about it. And he went away, and he came back the next day, and I think he scored 100 in a hundred in, in a sort of uh, inter-squad match, and he and he he clearly rectified the problem that he'd had previously, and I think they by thinking about it, very... by working it out, Simon. Yeah, yeah, by going away and solving the problem. You know, you you can't play leg spin or something, but then the player goes away and comes back with a revised method that works, mm-hmm. and I think someone like Joss Butler is you know highly rated because he solves the problem when he's out in the middle of a run chase. You know that. Um, the test match run chase at Old Trafford against Pakistan. He and Wokes found a way to win that game. Butler's brilliant at that. He's had a lot of big partnerships, hasn't he, in his career with people and obviously in the World Cup final with Stokes, Century Stand or whatever. Um, they're problem solvers. And I think that's that's hard to measure. In, 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 I mean, it feeds into the idea that you're there at the end, but you might get out just before the end, but you still solve the problem of getting the run chase. So it's a uh, question, I suppose, almost measuring what impact they had to take mm. your team towards victory. I'm glad you brought up Butler there because I was going to ask Freddie a question which was posed to me by Sanjay Mandraker, the former Indian batsman who, of course, is, is now a commentator, about to, to commentate on the on the IPL. And he was intrigued to know, and he, he often asked me random questions, and he said, uh, why is Butler not batting in the top of the order in the ODIs? Why does he not open? And I said... Uh, well, he's regarded as a very successful finisher, and I think his strike rate is much higher at number six than it is at number one or two, although he hasn't actually batted at number one or two in ODIs too often. Uh, Freddie, would you back that up? Well, yeah, I mean, Ross Butler's position in the batting order is sort of one of the you know modern cricket's great questions, isn't it? Whether it's T20 cricket or one-day cricket, how soon should he come in? Uh, how soon should you know? And, and it's not actually, I suppose, just related to Butler. It's about all good players. You'll see this question will be asked a lot during the upcoming IPL about Andre Russell. It was last year. When players are very good at the death, people start saying, "Well, why don't you get them in earlier?" Um, and there is certainly merit to that. And I expect, you know, if you do get some of these players in earlier, sometimes they will have really big effects on games. Obviously, the danger of that, or the trade-off, so to speak, in this um, ODI series in particular, has been very evident how tough batting has been in the first 20 overs. And in ODI cricket in particular, that still is very true, I think. Um, you know, you've got two new balls, albeit white ones that don't move so much, but opening the batting is tougher, and you do need to have a slightly more robust technique. And I don't actually think Butler doesn't have a technique to cope with it, but given how valuable he is at the death, the, you know, England are essentially saying in one-day cricket, we think that his best impact in the game is coming in, well, sort of... In- in the 20s and 30 overs, which is what they do. And they are quite flexible with his position now. He does move up. As he's got better and better, he's moved up. 
Um, South Africa did a very similar thing with A.B. de Villiers. He actually started his career at the top of the order, but they recognised that the best position for him was the middle. Um, and also that's partly because sometimes coming in against spin is also difficult and those players are particularly good against that. Butler's a fantastic player of spin in one-day cricket. Um, sometimes he has some issues in T20 cricket. But that, that I think, is sort of... It's, it's about trying to identify where they're going to have the biggest impact. And it's a trade-off between the earlier you come in, the more, more balls you face, but then maybe the more difficult it is when you're at the crease. And um, it's something that's very difficult to answer from a data perspective, particularly in that example, because we haven't got much many cases of Butler actually coming in early on. And if he does come in early on, his strike rate probably will be quite low because England might be 20 for three or something. And so that data is maybe not quite so easy to read into. So it's about, look, again, that's where you sort of use the expertise of the, the cricket guys and, they, and, and, and the, you know, the guys who know um, what Butler's particular skill set is and how best to utilise it. I wonder if there's a psychological aspect to it as well. I mean, you know, we talk about all the stats. You talk about the, the, the effect on the team. Say, you know, someone like Andre Russell, if he does come in and open and gets out in the first over, how damaging that is yeah, to, sort of, to the morale of a, of a team. At least you know you've got Andre Russell in the bank ready to come out, you know, whatever it might be, 14th, 16th over, and he's capable of producing miracles. And both sides know that as well. If you if you get him out early, get him in early. I mean, that's, you know, that's just a, another way of looking at it. And you've got the stats and then there's that, then there's that human yeah. side as well. Yeah, completely. Does, um, I've got I've got a question for Freddie, which um, I've, <laughs> I've not asked him before. Um, um, which is, um, can you start paying rent? You... He probably. No, <laughs> yes, well, that'd be nice. Yeah, it's your it's your it's your it's your round, Freddie. Um, no, can you can you quantify the role of a captain? Um, you know, we talk. Owen, Owen Morgan's a very good captain. We you know we sing his yeah. praises. But how do you measure whether Morgan's had a good game in the field, or even Aaron Finch? You know, did. Did a particular captain mess up on a particular day, or did he actually make the difference between winning and losing a narrow game? How, how yeah, do you well, quantify a captain? It's, it's a great question, and for, well, I mean, the the first thing to say is that the most the way that people will often measure just how good a captain is is just their win percentage, and that is obviously mainly because it's the only way at the moment we we do do that. But I think it's obviously a very simplistic and reductive way of analysing a captain because quite often they're only as good as their team. The example the other day in the second ODI, it's, it's interesting you bring up that question because it was something we were talking about this morning because the theme of that game very much seemed to be Morgan's captaincy sort of won it. Um, it's not something that we can measure at the moment, but I, I know how we can and it's something we're looking into. And this ties into the idea of matchups in particular. Um, and that's obviously something that's come about a lot in, in T20 cricket, which is you know, sort of bowling the right bowlers to the right batsmen. Now, that is measurable. We can, every time a bowler comes into the attack, tell if it is, you know, and we can put a number on it, how good a matchup it is. And just for a simplistic example, if you're bowling off spin to Aaron Finch, it's a bad decision almost always. Aaron Finch is a very, very good player of off spin, particularly in T20 cricket. He's got a strike rate of like 170, an average of about 70. So if you were a captain and you put uh, Moeen Ali to bowl <laughs> against Aaron Finch, we could sort of grade that, if you like, as a bad decision. And obviously over time, it would, you know, you could aggregate things. But even then, it's very complicated because there's going to be another batsman at the other end. So you've got to tie that into the consideration. Maybe the guy who's at the other end really hates off spin. And so in that respect, it's sort of a good decision. And then also you've got to maybe get rid of Moeen's overs at some point. And if you don't bowl him to Finch, you've got to bowl him to Maxwell. And Maxwell's got an even better record against off spin. So all of these things, there are so many moving parts. But 
ultimately we can put a number on the quality of any given captaincy bowling change and so we hope in time I think we can try and pick through that sort of maze and ultimately get to somewhere where we can evaluate the quality of bowling changes only of course that doesn't touch on something for example Darren Sammy is often highly regarded for which is the sort of motivating factor and the sort of leadership off the field which is even more difficult to quantify but that's something we can get to in you know a decade. <laughs> We, we've talked a lot about data, and, and Freddie, you've been, you know, you've been involved in the Oval Invincibles. What's also interesting as well, you, not so long ago, well, you, you've been involved in Melbourne Renegades, who won the the Big Bash season before last, and last time they mm-hmm. out, they had a, a really poor time. Did the did the stats men and women get blamed if the if the team does badly? You, you've got me the wrong players. What what happens? Um... Well, blamed is 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 a sort of strong word, but you know there are times. Certainly, when you might be responsible for certain things, you might, you know, of course. I mean, but as soon as you're ever, as soon as you're involved in the decision-making process, you're partly responsible. Mm. Um, you know, and it's obviously to a small degree. I think you know it's very important to say, even when teams are winning or when they're losing, the role of analysts. Um, and Nathan Lehman, who's England's analyst and sort of one of the most foremost, well, the most foremost analyst really, and has played a huge role in, in advancing sort of the, in the industry, um, I think said something along the lines of, you know, the best analysts are only ever going to make a difference of one or two percent to a game mm-hmm. at, at the very best. So even when, you know, it's very rare that you're going to massively influence a game. Of course, sometimes you might do more than that, but it, it, it's... It's rare that that happens, and on average, you're sort of making a small difference. Um, but no, when it went well, you know, we were sort of, um, or you know, I was sort of told, you know, well done. And when it goes badly, you sort of think, well, you know, what can you do better? And you know, sometimes you might suggest you pick a player or bowl a bowler in a certain over, and it doesn't work out. But you know, there are lots of other people in the think tank involved in actually that decision happening, and also then the player in executing the skills. And that's not me passing the blame onto the player, but. You know, they're the, ultimately the guys out on the field executing it, um, and it's yeah, it's it's just you're, you're part of a system and you're part of a team. I suppose uh, interestingly, you, you you know you've evolved from uh, you know your origins as your father's son, obviously, into this <laughs> multi-purpose role of you know uh, being able to to work for teams and also for a stats provider and sort of provide editorial content and input to a to a professional team as well. Whereas Simon, the father. You're slightly marooned still. I, I suppose that's an unfair word, but you you are still stuck in the kind of old-fashioned role of writing about the game and working just for one uh, operator, the Times. Uh, do, if you uh, now had to advise, uh, you know, you probably get letters, Simon, about you know the future, uh, advising whether you know someone should become a sports journalist. I certainly do, and mostly I, I say to people, if you want to be a sports journalist, uh, make sure you have a private income. But I mean, what, what what's your uh, what's your kind of uh, advice to people, you know, like Freddie, twenty year olds who who really aspire to be sports journalists? How how do they become one? Well, it is a good question. I mean, I've sort of had these conversations with Freddie in the past, really, where he was um, doing a bit of journal, you know, sort of conventional journalism, and and, and then also interested in the, in the data. And um, he had to make a decision, didn't he? Which um, you know, he's, he's now done, and I think he's very happy with it. But um, I mean, journalism's. Tri- I mean, people keep writing off journalism, saying it's it's dying, but it, it seems seems to me there are more and more people in the profession than ever it's just they're not being paid very well um and they're on very sort of ephemeral contracts but um there's plenty of people around but they're not they're not in the sort of jobs that we all aspire to have when we first started i think um there's 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 not so many of those so 
Um, so, in other words, do you need? Do you think it's important to be diverse in in how you yeah. approach the game? So you, you need to be able to to write and talk and maybe you know crunch numbers. Yeah, definitely, and 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 and. Well, these days, you know, it's not simply about writing. It's about, you know, podcasts like this one and uh, many other sort of outlets that are available to you. You know, if you're on social media or whatever, you've got to do all those things, I think, if you want to be relevant and, and get your profile um, out there, really. So it's it's a far more complex picture than it used to be, where it was a case of, you know, you worked for an agency or you worked for a newspaper or you you, you became a broadcaster, you know, a radio broadcaster or whatever, but... Um, it's 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 fragment it's atomized, isn't it? The whole scene is atomized, but there seems to be there's still a, there are still many roles that can be filled, but um, perhaps not quite as lucrative as it used to be. Is is it, uh, Freddie? Could you be accused of duplicity by you know working for a broadcaster and for a team? Uh, well, I would. It's very important that um, you know that I, I, the company that I work for, Crickviz, that you know they make sure that I'm never doing those two things at the same time. You know, if, for example, if I was, you know, working for the Renegades in the Big Bash, I wouldn't then be working um, for, for, for Fox on TV, I don't think. I mean, I might occasionally do games that wouldn't involve the Renegades, maybe, and that's just sort of advising commentators. But that you can, I think, yeah, the, the sort of conflict of interest thing is always there and around, and you've got to be careful with that. Um, but it's something that sort of, yeah, me and my employees look after, I suppose. But, yeah, you, you, I, people could certainly from the outside see it as, you know, do, well, you know, wearing different hats can at times cause conflicts, and I guess it's just up to me and, and Crickviz to manage that. Um, but you know, I, th I think you know, just just to go on, on the sort of line about journalism, it's very different now. And, and you know, it's people say, oh, you know, maybe it's dying, but you know, you only need to be on Twitter during a, a, any game nowadays to sort of see how a but you know how how much chatter and conversation there is about the game from very different from many different sources and many different people involved in the media, and obviously that's very different. To as I said, sort of the filing of a of a match report, sometimes done over the phone, you know, twenty, thirty years ago. But but it's still, you know, that that Twitter and, and social media and podcasts still are the media. It's just very different now, I think. And I think it's just about us adjusting um, what we consider to be journalism. Um, it isn't just the sort of written match report. What sort of reception do you get, or how receptive are television commentators to the data that you give them, Freddie? Very and, and increasingly so. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, Sky in particular lead the way with this. I mean, it, it does, you know, I'm not just saying this because, you know, I work for them, but it, it does, you know, when you're sat at home. And in fact, this summer, obviously not being in the commentary box, it was I was working remotely and a bit more removed. So therefore sort of consuming it in a quite different way. It does make you realize how sort of um, brilliant it is at times. The, the, the quality of analysis, not just from us, but from Hawkeye and the commentators themselves, who are really the main people there in conveying the message in the way they do. Um, you know, I think Sky is almost sort of gold standard, and when you watch that, you realise how effective it can be. And I think in the last few years, um, broadcasters and commentators around the world are sort of waking up to that and realising how powerful it is when you sort of can can integrate that data into the um, into the coverage. And quite often, it makes them look you know very smart because we'll we'll help spot something and help tell a story. And they're obviously the one. You know, quite often they'll they'll bring up the story as well, but. You know, it works well, and I think often it makes um, it makes the whole production work better. And I think now resistance to it is um, increasingly rare because I think everyone's aware of how successful it can be and how well it's working. So, Simon, your book um, about the history mm. of, uh, of the England team must have taken a long time to research. Was it worth it? 
uh, I th yeah, it was worth it. It was uh, pers personally very rewarding, I think, and I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, it was a challenge bringing the sort of this sheer uh, uh, amount of material under, sort of getting it under control. Um, it was quite tricky to decide how to structure it. I did it in theme chapters in the end, so it wasn't a case of just going chronologically through from 1877 to the modern day. It would have been boring to read and boring to write if you'd done that. Um, but I, so I tried to pick out particular aspects of, of how the team, England team, has operated over the years, and I think it made it more interesting for doing that. But I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, the book was well received, as you said earlier, so I think the, the, the format I came up with worked, um, but it was, it was a, a huge task, but it's very satisfying to do. And it, it's a, you know, the England cricket team should have a biography written of it, and there hadn't been one before. Um, I'm now working on a sort of sequel, which is um, a history of England on tour, which is not really going to be about too much about the matches as such, but just about the whole experience of touring. In fact, you were talking about earlier about mental health becoming more of an issue. I think the mental health of players going on long tours is, is something that's never really been properly addressed. It's, mm. you know, players suffer on tour, don't they? A lot of these, the, the Jonathan Trotts and Marcus Trusikothic stories, they happen on tour because it's, you know, you're you're stripped of your support network of family and friends at home. You're, you're sort of in this horrible little sort of bubble, really. <laughs> talking about bubbles these days. Uh, when you're on tour, 16 of you against the world, you know, against the local population, really. And if a tour goes badly, it can be a really hard place to be. So I'm sort of, the book is going to be exploring that theme, really. Um, so luck. that's the sort of, that's the sequel. That's the sequel. Good one. And, and Freddie, uh, how did your book go down with Tim? Uh, the assessment of T20 revolution. We, we, we spoke a lot about T20 cricket and we wanted to read a book about it and realised that it didn't exist. So we decided to write one, really, which is the sort of genesis of the idea anyway. Um, and yeah, we, it, it worked well because, uh, you know, obviously my experience working for teams and being quite close to the numbers uh, gave us sort of covered that base, if you like. And Tim has written extensively and in a lot of detail for a long time about a lot of the off-field aspects of T20, how it's changed the finances and economics of the game, um, and then also things such as match-fixing and doping, which are sort of modern uh, phenomenons, really, in many respects, and certainly ones that have been enhanced by T20. So it's not just a positive book. You know, I'm, I'm a big T20 fan, but it's not just sort of um, looking at the good things about it. There are lots of darker sides, I suppose, to T20 cricket, and particularly as well, mental health, again, is something that comes up a lot in the book in one chapter because, you know, even... Talk about players being lonely when they're on an England tour. It's even more lonely, I think, when you're playing for, you know, the, the DACA Dynamites and you know about, you know, two other players in the team speak English. Um, it's even more, you know, you're even more on your own in that situation. So um, there are a lot of different themes that we explore in the book. But, yeah, it, it was great. We managed to combine, I suppose, two uh, different skill sets of Tim and I to, to produce something which I hope has um, been interesting for readers. Well, well done with, with that. And there you have it, uh, in a way, in one family the past, present and the future of cricket covered in, in so many different ways. Uh, so those two books are, are still available, of course. And it just makes me think, actually, especially with, with your development, Freddie, I just think back to the days when we were fielding at Lords on a hot summer's day like today and we got hit for a, individually for sort of over 100 and because there was no digital scoreboards or any kind of, you know, mobile phones or any kind of social media, uh, the only way the captain could 
get the, the bowling figures, the, the fatal evidence at the end of the day was a little scrap of paper, which the scorer wrote all the analysis on and then presented to the captain sort of half an hour after the end of play or 20 minutes after the end of play. And so it was one bowler's job, if we'd had a really bad day, to intercept the scorer on his way to the <laughs> captain and just basically s- snaffle the, that incriminating sheet of paper away from him and burn it so that the captain only discovered what the bowling figures were in the next morning's paper those were the days when we so could get away with it were relevant. yeah so listen guys i think we know what was on that paper yours don't we we do we do i think we know what was on that paper yeah, I, I got a few hundreds but none with the bat as it were um anyway it's, it's been fascinating to to hear your accounts of your different roles and uh, we'll obviously watch your uh, next outputs with interest with the, the One Day International series about to be concluded and lots of other cricket coming up after that. So many thanks for your time. Good luck with the continued sales of your books. And talking of books, uh, as I said, we will be talking about the book I've written with the owner of the Rajasthan Royals uh, later in the week. But in the meantime, enjoy whatever cricket you can get to or hear about or read about. And don't forget thecricketer.com as well for the best analysis of the game and also coverage of the game. And the magazine is out now. We'll speak to you later in the week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.